Hello, I'm Gillian Knipe and welcome to Art Fictions, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. Today's guest is the very talented artist Hannah Luxton. Several years ago, Hannah initiated what has become Glass Cloud Gallery, located in the Camden People's Theatre in London. It's a fitting title for an artist whose work is driven by the sublime as she explores states of place without depicting an actual location. Instead, it's the sensation of experience, ideas, emotion, geometry and geography which come together in her deceivingly simple images. She has a way of portraying something huge and intangible, something difficult to define or locate. With paintings such as Dream Pool, Moon Mountain and Star Stream, you might expect quietly whispering images, but Hannah's work has all the presence of a dream when you are actually dreaming it, in the moment when it is solid and certain. Only later does it bear the memory lens of soft pastel. For our discussion, Hannah has chosen A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. While it's not technically fiction, I'm going to call it something like factual fiction, because it's littered with uncertainty and a confidence that the way stories transform over time, through generations, across cultures, reinterpretations by artists, becomes a powerful key to knowledge. Published by Canongate Books in 2005, it tells of Wandering and Wondering by the author whose essay, Men Explain Things to Me, inspired the term mansplaining. Don't we just love that? In the book, Rebecca Solnit traverses art, childhood memories, ancestral stories, indigenous Americans, the plight of species, and an assortment of travels, as well as an equal level of mindful pondering to describe states of getting lost in order to be truly present. She asserts that losing things is about the familiar falling away as if you are sitting on a train and facing backwards, whereas getting lost is about the unfamiliar appearing, the way facing forwards unravels the new. She draws on a multitude of sources, including Plato's Socratic dialogue between Socrates and Mino as they discuss finding things unknown. Love, wisdom, grace, inspiration. How do you go about finding these things, which are in some ways about extending the boundaries of the self into unknown territory? She also continually returns to the blue of distance, citing how French artist Yves Klein, aged 20, claimed to have signed the sky as his own work of art. His international Klein Blue unified the material and the remote, so that however close up and tactile, it is always about distance and disembodiment. The world is blue at its edges and in its depths, she says. While colour is subject to its own length and speed, this blue is the light that got lost. So Hannah and I tried not to get lost in our discussion, but we definitely meandered, looped, lunged and backtracked as we attempted to bridge the space between Rebecca's text and the artist's work, a most appropriate expedition considering our subject. Hannah Luxton, welcome to Art Fictions. Thank you. So you've chosen A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. Yeah. Maybe you could start by telling us why you chose this book. Well, funnily enough, I bought it ages ago, like years ago, and it was always something that I'd meant to read because I just I felt like I was going to have a, a connection with it. That, but um, I just never got around to it. So when you approached me about this, I just thought this is like the perfect time. And it has really 
surprised me in, in how much I've, I felt connected to so many of the things she talks about. And I think I, I liked the idea initially of what it means to get lost. But quickly, as I was reading, she goes into so many different sort of realms. I was trying to sort of summarise it. And I think that it is about what it means to lose something and for it to be lost in the world. And then what it means for something to be lost to the earth forever. And then there's another side to what she talks about being lost, which is to be in the place of the unknown and to kind of search for it, what it, what it feels like to be there and how to get there. And that was the part that I was really interested in because I think that that is something I'm trying to tap into in my own work and use it as a vehicle for imagination, as a way to kind of get into a, a different kind of space, into that unknown, which is yeah, maybe quite a big task, but I think I think I can do it. <laughs> maybe you could read from the book. So she has a, a recurring chapter title called The Blue of Distance, where she talks about the sort of celestial blue that you find in Renaissance paintings. She talks about the idea of the unknown things being far away and how that how there's a, a, a beauty and sort of longing and things like that. A quote I can pick out. So thinking about the role of the artist, she says, it's the, the job of the artist to open doors and invite in prophecies, the unknown, the unfamiliar. It's where their work comes from. Whereas scientists always live at the edge of mystery, the boundary of the unknown, but they transform the unknown into the known and haul it in like fishermen. Artists get you out into that dark sea. And that's actually from a chapter, the first chapter called Open Door. And I really believe that it is the artist's role to open doors. I liked the idea of reading a small mm. section myself to sort of connect with you in this conversation. But actually, I found there were so many parts I wanted to read out that I thought I'm just going to read yeah. them through our discussion. So... Yeah, I took that on as well, that segment, and it just threw up so many things to me. One of them was the connection to, as you say, mm. the Renaissance paintings. I mean, she comes up with a list of people yeah. or paintings where you have blue to mm -hmm. designate distance, but the painters, I know one of them is Hans Memling and one yeah. of them is Raphael, and she's talking about the exaggerated blues of Joachim Patanir in his St. Jerome in the mm. desert, where you've got the desert becomes a blue background and then you've got St. Jerome clad in blue. So you've got this far away that the artist brings much closer. And I look at a lot of Hans Memling's paintings and that blue, it's actually too foregrounded to be technically, let's say, mm. correct. In fact, she she writes a book. I don't know. Do, have you read The Far Away Nearby? No, I haven't yet. Yeah. So that seems to be about the same idea where something far away is brought very close. Mm -hmm. And your paintings evoke that where you have this sort of mystery location in them. Mm -hmm. But I feel it's from some faraway place as well. Or as the saying goes, the artists get you out into that dark sea. Uh-huh, yeah. I don't feel yours are located in the sea, but they certainly are somewhere mysterious that I don't know about. <laughs> yeah, they're um, maybe not in the sea, but it's it's what the sea kind of evokes. 
the sea is one of the Earth's kind of wonders that allows you to uh, sense a feeling of unknown, the beyond of knowledge. And with that, ideas around the sublime. I use the horizon quite a lot. That's a, another thing that kind of comes with the ocean is that sort of idea of unknown and distance. The horizon is like a visual tool for implying that. Quite a lot further into the book, she brings up Blue again in Eve's Klein, and she talks about his Blue implying infinite distance and immediate presence at the same time. And that's something I can really relate to with, with my work as well, the sort of that paradox of a painting being something that is flat and two-dimensional, but then a painting of a, a three-dimensional space that I'm inviting you to sort of go into with your mind. So I've, I've, it's just yet another thing that I felt was a, a reflection with my work and the book there. She does talk about the Eve Klein, how he painted a globe. I didn't realise he did this. No, I didn't. I thought, this, <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. So he painted a globe totally blue. Yeah. And thus it was a world without divisions between countries between land and water, as though the world itself had become sky, as if looking down was now looking up. I can't fathom which part of that is more interesting, the idea of the world as one holistic water mass, but also the idea of no divisions between countries. In fact, he actually manipulated maps. So he joined up mm. places like France and Algeria, who at the time were fighting with one another. The other fascinating part of that is the idea of looking down now being looking up. I suppose that brings me to some of your paintings where I'm not sure where we're looking as well. So if I think of Lava Crater, for instance, mm -hmm. it seems like we're looking at that like it's another figure, but also we're looking into the crater of the volcano as well. So it has a dual perspective in one simple form. It does, yeah. Do you have a sense of where perspective is in your paintings? I think I play around with where I want the viewer to feel like they are. Just going back to the, the horizon for a second, that I find is a really powerful and simple way to anchor uh, the painting and to, to anchor the, the person looking at the painting. You understand that line to be a, a division of land and sky. and But then occasionally, and actually maybe more often now, I'm removing that sort of on purpose to leave the painting kind of floating so you don't have a sense of grounding. Then with, with Lava Crater, I often put, like if it's a mountain or a volcano, I put things right at the, at the base of the, the painting, almost like the base of the painting is the ground. One of the things that comes up for me about that and I think the idea of taking out the horizon is going to be a really interesting experiment because in Numia and Numia 2 and Lava Crater for instance I experience them almost like either they're sort of propping themselves up to mm. see me to be seen mm -hmm. or they're slipping off the canvas oh. so mm -hmm. either way I feel they represent I don't know how else to say this but a glimpse they're a glimpse of something. They are solid, you know, they are present, but they're only a glimpse. 
Yeah, and in that sense, just thinking about what you're saying there and about perspective and why I place forms right at the bottom of the, the paintings like that. They're landscapes, but not in, in the traditional sense. You know, they actually don't have perspective. They're really immediate, almost like you're, you're inside them. But something that I, I started at, when I started drawing these compositions I realised that there's a sort of childlike way of, of designing compositions like that. I, I always think about children, the way they draw, they might draw their house or their garden. And you've always got like this, this strip of green grass just along the bottom edge of the paper. And then the sky is like a blue line at the top. Yeah, and, and I just love that. And I think about what's what's the space in between, you know, and it's that that intangible space, um, which is what I am always so interested in trying to um, visualize or, or draw attention to. I think that's a lovely analogy. In fact, I guess several things uh, that makes me think of. One is that I do find it children's development from everything floating, which is how they start drawing, mm -hmm. and then they understand gravity at some age. I don't know when it is. I do have children, but I can't recall. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden, you're right, everything is on the ground, lined up like little soldiers, and then there's this big space. And mm -hmm. I see that absolutely in your work where – you could say, for instance, you have an object on raw canvas, but of course that space is also part of the composition of the painting. Oh, yeah. And coming back to the book for a moment, I was thinking of where the author is talking about Eve Klein's exhibition, The Void. Yeah. So uh, just to summarize that very quickly for listeners the void was an exhibition in paris his second exhibition in paris uh, and he emptied the gallery he cleaned it thoroughly and he painted it pure white all over while mentally summoning immaterial forces the idea was a creation of ambiance or ambience I'm, I'm never quite sure how to say that word mm -hmm. Uh, this invisible pictorial state within the gallery space should be so present and so endowed with autonomous life that it should literally be what has hitherto been regarded as the best overall definition of painting. That is radiance. And just to recap, Eve Klein actually sold some of these paintings, which were, you know, they didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, they were notions or whatever they were. And part of the deal was that he was paid in gold and he took half of that payment and cast it somewhere out into the world where it may or may not ever be found, supposedly. And uh, the other condition was that you had to burn the receipt. So in the end, there's no trace of the yeah. painting. <laughs> what a cheek! <laughs> <laughs> So I wondered about those two concepts with your paintings, that is the idea of the void and the idea of radiance. It's kind of my mission to paint the void, to draw attention to that space, the intangible space between things, but also to encourage us to think about and to love the unknown, like this space beyond what we can see. She says in the book, talking about Klein again, so in response to Klein's exhibition, Camus writes in the guest book, with the void full of powers. 
Absolutely. I think it connects to the Eastern philosophy of the void, which is a nothingness. Mm-hmm. I guess it's rather like uh, meditation. I mean, that's what it reminds me of. And that leads me on to what she says a little bit later about Buddhism and uh, about enlightenment, about embracing the emptiness that is not lack as it seems to Westerners, but letting go of the finite and material, embracing limitlessness, transcendence, freedom, enlightenment. And that is what I want my paintings to try and help people do. About radiance, quite literally, there's radiance in my paintings. I paint stars, the sun, the moon, I don't know which they are. And they, they literally have a have a radiance, they have a glow, they have a, a light, an energy coming off them, which has different kind of feelings depending on the way I paint it. Sometimes it's very soft and quite a cold light. Sometimes it's really intense and really bright. I use raw linen, um, which has a beautiful texture and, and colour to it, as a way to activate that unknown space in my paintings. So where you'll have that strip of colour along the bottom, which is the land, or you've got a mountain sort of sitting at the base of the painting. Above it and surrounding it is this really beautiful sort of grey-brown, imperfect sort of surface, which somehow I feel gives a, a physicality to all of the empty space, which, as I said, is not something I believe is empty at all. And the linen is a really great way to help suggest that there is a physicality to it. That's right. That texture really does make the mm-hmm. the space, if you like, really tangible than something that's very much present as part of the composition. And as you bring up, when I look at the work far away, so Lava Crater is a good example, it has this sort of smoothness and gentleness. And when I'm up closer, it's very textured. I was having a conversation the other day with Grant Foster, and he was talking about making wax sculptures which look really beautiful far away and then you get up close and they're really quite imperfect and maybe that's the way Mm -hmm. he deals with the wax but it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because that's what he wants to portray and maybe you want to talk about that texture I think impasto is not quite the word because it's not wild and rough but it's definitely textured. Yeah with that painting and actually a lot of mountains that I paint I use a beeswax medium which takes the the natural gloss in oil paint and instantly mats it uh, and takes all of the shine out of it and gives it more body so it's actually easier to use like a palette knife to kind of scrape it on rather than paint it with a brush and I think with the mountains with the volcanoes it's a way of me kind of yeah trying to to suggest the sort of realness of that place and yeah it's interesting what you say about from a distance they appear as one thing I love being able to invite people in to the paintings with a sense of curiosity that that they can evoke and as you come closer and you look at them in detail you see there is so much more to the painting than than it appears at a distance and I kind of love that game that I'm playing because uh if you are invested in the discovery, if you're curious and you're willing to kind of come forward and engage, then the paintings have so much more to offer. 
that one in particular was so fun to make because I scraped on all of the mound of the volcano and then I scraped out almost with my finger the lava ring and filled it with this really glossy vermilion like a bright sort of orangey red um, and I'd mixed it with some traditional mediums to give it a real like amazing luminosity and so when you when you approach the painting and come, come up close to it you're sort of rewarded with that. I think it also evokes the reality that when we see a mountain or a landscape in the distance, mm. I, I feel a sort of almost like an ownership of a vista. But then when you come up close to the individual parts that make that up, which I can see in that painting, those objects claim themselves. They are their own beast. Mm -hmm. They have their own life and it is nothing to do with you. <laughs> Yeah, that goes back again to what Rebecca is saying about that blue of distance. And she talks about mountains so much in the book, you know, spending most of her life uh, around California and driving around the American wilderness. She has a real love of mountains as well, you can tell. Yeah, and you've travelled around all that area, haven't you, to Death Valley and all the places that she mentions. Yeah. Did you want to talk about your journeys and when was that? What aspects of it really moved you? Because that had a profound effect, I think, on your work and on you. It really did. I travel a lot, as much as I can, to remote places as a visual research. I don't paint places exactly as they are, but I've realised that certain places resonate with me and that I then come home and I spend time drawing and trying to compose sort of uh, spaces for paintings that evoke those places. And the last place I went was to America. My husband and I did a road trip, which is something we'd been planning for ages, and it was fantastic. From Louisiana, we drove to Texas, up through Arizona to California. We went to the painted desert in Arizona and the petrified forest, which is the most beautiful, colourful place full of fossilised trees. And we went to the Grand Canyon. We went to Death Valley. I love the word sublime and what it means, which as far as I understand, it's a feeling. It's a, the human capacity of feeling when you're presented with the possibility of death, basically, but you're at a safe enough distance to kind of enjoy that closeness. And Death Valley really instills that in you because, I mean, it's vast anyway, and it, it's really beautiful. You've got these two huge mountain ranges that come down into a, a salt flats and if you go out onto the salt flats, it is so hot. And we walked out there and there were some other people around and we wanted to walk until we couldn't see anyone else, you know, so you just felt really alone in it. Oh my gosh, I'd be so terrified. It was really exciting. You, could, you knew the car was back there, and but you know, we walked and we sort of didn't realise how long we'd been walking and I only had one bottle of water left with me. And within sort of a minute or two of being out there, it got completely warm water. And uh, you know, we drank that and suddenly felt really sort of vulnerable that we didn't have any more water. <laughs> so yeah, we turned around and went back to the car. We almost got stuck in there because it was getting dark and we thought, this is our way out. So we, we took the route to leave. Um, and head into Nevada just for the night and the road was closed and we were running out of gas which we'd been really conscious about the whole journey we, we, we were on the road for about two weeks and uh, so we had to turn around and go a long way back 
and try a different route out. And there was a you know a moment, well, longer than a moment, when we were driving and it was now dark and it's really windy and low tank of gas and not sure if the road we were going down was going to actually let us out. But we did get out. But it's just that that sense of just feeling really vulnerable within the landscape and being reminded that uh, there are forces out there that are so much bigger than you. And um, yeah, Iceland is another place where I've really felt that. Lots of my paintings are about Iceland, about the geographical sites, waterfalls, and even down to like pools of water, sort of surrounded by the, I think it's called reindeer moss, which grows everywhere on the, the lava fields in, in Iceland. And it's a sort of beautiful, bluey, purpley grey growing over this black volcanic rock. I'm working on a, a new series of paintings now, which are inspired by not a particular place in America, but maybe go, going through like Arizona and California, Death Valley, this sense of space and openness that that open road really gives you these huge skies and I was the passenger in the car, which was great. So I was just drawing all the time. And through all my sketches, I've sort of come up with quite a lot of different compositions, different ideas that I'm now working on. But the, the Canyon series is this new series. And um, yeah, not of a specific place, but of a feeling, a sense of big kind of valley walls on either side of you and a small sort of uh, object or like a, a little ball of energy or something that's kind of sitting at the bottom of it, like a gemstone or this kind of maybe it's supposed to represent like this kind of discovery or this magical thing that's at the end of the journey that maybe you'll never get to <laughs> and yeah Iceland is another really magical place and I have been there a few times now uh, the first time I went was on a residency that sadly isn't running anymore everyone that I knew that had been to Iceland said you have to go you're gonna love it and I really did I've explored the sort of more central parts of the island and the northern perimeter. I'm yet to do the, the southern side, but I need to sort of explore every part of it in depth. <laughs> There's a couple of amazing waterfalls that I went to visit. One is called Godafoss and the other one is called Detifoss. And um, yeah, even the, the journeys to get to them, you know, everyone says it's, you know, it's the journey, not the destination. It's that sense of being, again, like in America, sort of feeling very small, you know, and feeling like you really have to respect the weather and respect the, the landscape, because if you don't pay attention to it, then you could be in a lot of trouble. I've been to Iceland and I definitely felt that sense of vulnerability because yeah. you go out into the open road and it's like no other open road I've ever been to because Oddly enough, there's just ice everywhere mm -hmm. and the colours are so strange that pastel turquoise yeah. and pinks and lilacs, it's a place I just didn't understand at all. I felt really alien to the place. Yeah. And yeah, I've been to some of those waterfalls, which are incredible, and they also have a really unusual green in the water. Yes. So... All, all these places that we're talking about, whether it be California or Death Valley or Iceland, I feel like the trip to America is full of all that sort of hot colours, earth and dust and more reds. And mm -hmm. Iceland is all those soft pastels. But in your work, I can see in something like Lagoon, mm -hmm. where you bring in that really unusual turquoise colour. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure turquoise is the right. It is, yeah. It's pure turquoise. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
If we think of Rebecca Solnit's book, she is talking constantly about blue. Mm. Because I was on the audiobook, I thought she got it wrong the second time she said the same title, yeah. you know, The Distant Blue or whatever it is, yeah. and then realised, oh, no, she's repeating this. Yeah. There's something so profound for her in the colour blue yeah. as there was for Eve Klein. And that doesn't translate directly to your paintings because you're not using colour in that way. Can you talk about your approach to colour? Yeah. When I was on my foundation course, I can't remember who it was, but one of the teachers said to me that I didn't know how to use colour. And I didn't realise how much that affected me for so many years, to the point in which I just wouldn't really explore it very much. Even now, in my defence, I think partly it's because I'm using unprimed linen. So that's already a colour, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But there's rarely more than, apart from the linen, or as well as the linen, there's only maybe two other colours in one painting. I'm really trying to find like a harmony between the colours. And now I'm pushing it and I'm working with more colours. I use pure single pigment colours all the time. I very, very rarely mix. I'm really interested in the purity of one single pigment. The turquoise is just one example. And I also use quite sort of precious colours like lapis lazuli, which is a beautiful blue, very old colour as well. And then malachite, which is copper carbonate, which is a, an amazing soft green. And they often aren't representative of the reality of a, of a place. Something in the power of being able to choose what colour you're going to make the sky. <laughs> um, at the moment, I'm working on a couple of paintings that um, the sky's really pink, which, you know, it does happen, but there's sort of a heightened sensory experience there. It's like you have the power to exaggerate an experience. When I was at college, I used to take photographs of places and then try and work from those and really quickly got frustrated because I, I didn't know how to paint what I had felt. I couldn't photograph what I felt. I couldn't paint what I felt through using photograph as a sort of anchor. So I just did away with it and now work just from my imagination, from sketches and, and then a, a reductive process, which is, you know, how the paintings become so simplified down to their purest elements. And then we throw in really pure and maybe slightly psychedelic colours so they're more like a, a dream. I think it's a real shame that the, let's say, lack of colour or colourful colour in your paintings comes from such a negative experience because <laughs> I think that works really well. It keeps them in this stillness that is so much a part of their power. And when you also talk about them being reduced and reduced, when I was researching, I was thinking about the Renaissance painters and Rebecca's comment about perceptions in childhood. So I'm just going to read a bit. Mm -hmm. There is no distance in childhood where, for a baby, a mother in the other room is gone forever. Whatever is absent is impossible, irretrievable, unreachable. Their mental landscape is like that of medieval paintings, a foreground full of vivid things and then a wall which is a lovely description of medieval paintings. Yeah. So in a way, there is something about your paintings where I can see something of the Renaissance, I can see something of medieval, and I can see something of minimalism, as if it sort of broaches this whole span of painting. 
And it would be interesting to see how much colour those paintings could actually cope with. Mm. Because as you say, you know, you don't want to locate the work in the landscape as such, because they're more mind landscape paintings than they are landscape paintings. Also that in the book, the author talks with regards to photography and old photographs, which show, she says, more of a kinship to a period of time than they do to family or ancestry in the way that we would look at photos of our parents and think, oh my God, I can't believe they were young once. But they look like everybody else from that generation of photographic technology more than they look like us or anything like that. And uh, she makes a comment where she says, I think most Americans who didn't live through it think the Depression took place in a world of rough hue but secretly seductive black and white surfaces as though texture itself could be a wealth to counter all that poverty. And aside from the fact that that's a very beautiful description, mm. it's also true that the the colour or the lack of colour and the raw linen and its texture and the surface detail or the lack of surface detail are all part of the story. Mm of what the painting is portraying beyond, I guess, the picture that's on the canvas. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, in some ways, I kept coming back to the idea of glass as an amorphous solid. To me, that makes sense when I think of the images sort of slipping off the canvas or the mountains arriving on the canvas or coming up into the canvas. There always seems to be this movement that is so slow. Well, that's what was thought of glass. Glass was always thought of as a liquid, Mm -hmm. that it just moves so slowly that we couldn't see it move. Actually, it doesn't do that, but that idea is in those paintings. Yeah, I definitely feel it in something like Duo, which is two very triangular mountain shapes. They're reflected, so it's like there's invisible water there, but they are sort of there and not there. It's oil paint that looks very strange because it looks more like watercolour in the way that I've used it. And then also what you're saying about glass makes me think I paint water and puddles and pools and lakes and things quite a lot. And I often put like a a sort of veneer or gloss on them, which gives them a a reflective quality. It it makes them look actually quite solid as well as implying something that's liquid. So there's that paradox I'm glad you brought up those paintings with the orb and the puddle because it really accentuates how puddles just exist in random places. (laughs) Yeah, they do. But then the orb makes its location unknowable in in a funny way uh, because they are not in the same – I don't know what the word is – they're not in the same category or something. Mm. One one is an actual thing that we know of that we're familiar with that exists in the world, mm-hmm. and the other is a circle. And, yeah. okay, so it could be the sun or the moon. It's not like in Numia where you've got a glow around the orb. Yeah. So it really holds a certain intrigue because it throws your expectation, but because it's such a simple painting, it gives you a sense that it's going to be quite accessible. And actually it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I think in that painting, in the same way that I'm playing with removing the horizon from a lot of paintings as well, to kind of see what it's like to give less information like how little information can I give how much do I need to tell you for you to 
be able to enter into it and how curious can I make it? And yeah, so Lagoon is the first in a series where I was testing out what, what happens if I don't give this orb that glow, if it is just a really kind of buttery, pasted, almost perfect orb kind of sitting on this really crisp grey linen. It becomes, again, when you get close to it, I wonder if it becomes more about the paint and the surface because you're given less information as to what it really is. I don't know. And bringing that shape, that suggestion of, of a star or something, bringing it close down and small and so close to, to this puddle. It's like you're compressing space. You're bringing them really close together. And there's no scale as well. There's very rarely any scale in my paintings on yeah. purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got really little paintings called Constellation and it's less than 30 centimetres tall, but it's talking about a constellation. It's talking about something huge. They're talking about the cosmos, you know, bigger than we can conceive in this tiny little space. And yeah, that leads on really nicely to something that Rebecca says about place and landscape having a kind of spiritual meaning for us. And she has a really beautiful paragraph which I'll read. She says, the places in which any significant event occurred become embedded with some of that emotion. And so to recover the memory of the place is to recover the emotion. And sometimes to revisit the place uncovers the emotion. Every love has its landscape. Thus place, which is always spoken of as though it only counts when you're present, possesses you in its absence, takes on another life as a sense of place a summoning in the imagination with all the atmospheric effect and association of a powerful emotion. The places inside matter as much as the ones outside. It is as though in the way places stay with you and that you long for them, they become deities. And I really feel like that with the geographical sites that I've found and then become, well, I sort of fall in love with them and I just want to recreate them and reinvent them. and like we were saying with colour, elevate them as well. For me, that was a really standout piece in the book as well. And I think she goes on to talk about, but it, I guess it's quite obvious, that we look to these deities to recognise our own smallness and as well as something you know divinely beautiful that holds us. Yeah, there is something overwhelming and overwhelmingly beautiful about some places. And then she talks about feeling a sense of loss and how emotions like that can be tied up in place and landscape. In a way, that brings me back to the concept of the sublime. And what's very apparent to me is that if you look at the sublime in painting history, Turner and Martin, it's sort of fire and brimstone, whereas yours is absolutely not that, couldn't be yeah. further away from that. And Caspar David Friedrich, particularly his paintings of graveyards, he has a melancholy about his sublime. And you don't have the same take that they do. You've developed your own ideas that are much more aligned with Rebecca Solnit's ideas about loss and loss of meaning and loss of knowing mm -hmm. as a way to gain being present. And also in our discussion just now, you say the word love a lot. You say the word beautiful and they're so shunned in art, which yeah. I think is really problematic. 
taking on the sublime, you're taking on something really huge, you know, yeah. like constellation. Are you able to articulate that or has it just come about quite organically? I haven't made any conscious decisions as to how to present the idea of the sublime in my work. It is just how it comes out, which means that it's just how I feel about the unknown, uh, at least the unknown within landscape, because there's lots of different sublimes. But with the geological sublime, the paintings are really kind of instinctive. I haven't thought about what kind of emotion I want to present. It's just how they come out. I wonder if something of it is because, in a way, it's not an emotion. So I'm referring now to Sarah Jaspin did a lovely essay for you in your exhibition with Julie Hill of Stars and Chasms last year. And she starts the essay by talking about, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, one thing that often soothes me is the thought of my own and every other living creature's sheer inconsequentiality. That was a big word to say. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And um, our lives and fretted concerns weigh less than a speck of cosmic dust in a universe estimated to be around 13,799 billion years old. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess it comes back to illuminating the unknown and the unknowable. In fact, in the book, she went into the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown knowns. Yeah, and how Zizek says that they missed one, sort of the the unknown knowns, like the things that you don't even realise you know. Does that mention unknown unknowns? Yeah, that's just another level, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Which I love. But in a way, a significant painting will arrive at that. Yeah. Not that we want to define a painting, but that's yeah. why we struggle to talk about a painting because it's something that maybe we don't even know about. In fact, Rebecca Solnit says, does the work mean what the artist intended it to mean? Or is it larger than the artist intended? I mean, yeah. here we are having a conversation about your paintings and about the sublime, but part of it inherently is that you can't actually yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you just kind of took the words right out of my mouth because I think that I think when you're presented with feelings of the sublime, I'm not saying that art has the exact ability to do that. Like that's maybe another conversation. I think it's to do with how paintings can activate your imagination to access those sorts of feelings. I wrote my master's thesis on that. I think part of the feeling of the sublime is that realisation that there are unknown unknowns. I think it's that sort of peak at that realisation that there's beyond of knowledge and it just continues. It's amazing. Speaking of the sublime, Ansel Adams did a series of photographs of Yosemite National Park. And so what really threw me when I saw them in an exhibition at the Haywood was how small they were, because technology didn't allow for photographs to be blown up really huge at the time. And I found it astounding that he was able to convey this amazing awe about a place in such a small scale photograph. Scale is something that I've I've struggled with forever. Isn't Um, that a good struggle, though? Yeah, it's interesting because for me, these are sort of, like we said, kind of landscapes of the mind almost. They can be sort of any size. I really admire how she's taken this idea and she's applied it in so many different ways. It's like 
this idea of being lost, of getting lost, of losing things, of losing you know loved ones and to objects and small trinkets and things. It's just so central to the way we think and live and how she's linked it to emotions and memory. It's just so romantic and, yeah, beautiful again. <laughs> I don't say beauty ever really when I talk about art because as you say it, it is so it's so loaded and is is complex but this is about real life you know and there is there's a real beauty in in everything she says that brings up something interesting about her locating the idea of loss and being lost across a number of ways which has me thinking about your motifs you seem to have a repetition of arch, triangle, line and orb. And we've talked a bit about orb and line as in the horizon. Mm -hmm. I wanted to come to arch and triangle because mm -hmm. they have appeared in installations that you've done, for instance, as part of fleeting affiliations yes. by Lily Brook. And so I'm just going to describe this. You painted a series of arches on the window called One Day. Mm -hmm. And you've also had Mountains in the Sky at Camden People's Theatre. Yeah. And Elevation at the Barbican Arts Group, uh, which was the, that was the Triangles, wasn't it? At the Barbican Arts Group Trust a few years ago. I had a painting called An Ascent, which was on the other side of the wall to the mural that I did, where these almost invisible triangles were floating up the wall in between the shadows of the banister uh, up the stairs. And the whole gallery is, um, is over, I think, three floors. It's like a narrow corridor that you walk up. So as you walked up through the exhibition, you were sort of rising with the painting giving this sense of elevation all the way up to the top. That reminded me of how when you're in the mountains in the snow, the light hits the surface of the snow. And as you move across the mountain, you just get all this shimmery flickering mm -hmm. of light. And so they seem to have that same effect. Yes. So across the Barbican and mountain in the sky and one day, there's triangles and arches that keep repeating themselves. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about those? They were two of the sort of first motifs that I started working with when I sort of realised that I could use shapes as, as sort of playthings almost and put them into space. And the triangle began as a sort of, it kind of merges from being like a mountain and being the diagonal lines being used as a, in a sort of technical drawings as a way to imply perspective. I use it in different ways. You mean it's like a pathway where the base of the triangle is at the widest, is the near part, yeah. and the pathway going into the distance, it narrows yeah. and narrows into the horizon. Exactly. Yeah. That point is the beyond of knowledge again. For me, the triangle had these different meanings. And in other paintings, the triangle is more expanded. I have another painting called Jump, which is maybe one of my favourites. It's a triangle on the side of the canvas with like a waterfall spouting. Yeah. So at that point, the triangle is like a cliff edge or something. In a way, I'm kind of holding on to geometry as a sort of security almost. And I don't use the triangle quite so much in that way anymore. I'm sort of becoming a lot more looser with it. And the arches you mentioned earlier about Caspar David Friedrich and his graveyards. That's where my love of the arch kind of originated in a romantic sense. I love the idea, especially with the ruins that Friedrich would paint, 
the arch maybe belonged to something and it, and it used to define or divide space but in his paintings they don't anymore so if you walk through it and you're in the same space they don't really do anything but I love the idea of them in a kind of dream way taking you into a parallel universe or the fantasy of them and then again thinking about taking that grounding away like I was saying before what happens if you do that to the arch and you, you take it off the ground out of context and put it in the sky and then you're in one magical world and then you can go through this arch into another space and so it's kind of like a, a window or doorway into the unknown again absolutely so they become like a threshold in the friedrich paintings you are part of the world of life and then you step over that threshold into the world of death which is the graveyard yeah and i get that sense as well with rothko's paintings yeah that he is giving you a threshold to possibly walk through. In your mind, obviously, not in yeah. <laughs> real life. Well, your mind is in real life, but anyway. Yeah. Um, and also your arch appeared on the window. It, yes, it did. I love working with windows because there's something really, really amazing about being able to bring your immediate surroundings and make that part of the work. I use that principle of drawing the arches onto the windows at the Camden People's Theatre with Glass Cloud Gallery, which the theatre has two amazing big windows and Glass Cloud puts on exhibitions in these spaces every summer. And for that, I'd painted a triangle on the wall behind the glass and then I'd painted arches onto the glass. So from the street looking at the window, you had the arches quite close to you. You could get right up to the glass and you could see I did it with an oil bar, so really hard as well, and then smudged them with my finger. So you could really see the materiality, like the texture of it. And then beyond the glass, just like a foot away, was this white wall that had this blue mountain painted on it. But what was really magical about it was how the glass was reflecting the sky for real so it's like the mountain was in the sky and the arches were in the clouds and I couldn't have hoped for it to have gone better than that you know I was looking at the windows thinking how am I going to deal with the reflections and actually quite quickly I realized that the reflections is what I need to use because when can when can a painter get real clouds into their work you know so Lily Brook Gallery was the start of that idea. You had the arches on the windows. With one eye closed, you could place the arch like on the roof of the house across the road and things like that. So they're quite interactive as well. And that makes me think also that the paintings are too. Like we were saying before about the paintings inviting you to come close to really understand the textures. Paintings that have more sort of reflective moments in them. Again, they're not sometimes not revealed until you walk past them and then they kind of flash at you um, as they catch the light. So a lot of it is about creating a new experience. Glass Cloud is very much about that as a, as a concept as well. Yeah, I thought they were really successful pieces. And I think it's right to make the connection with paintings because the paintings to me feel like almost like atmospheres to live with as much as look at. Yeah. In fact, when I was reading the book, I, as I said, I listened to an audio of it and Rebecca Solnit actually does the reading of her mm. own book. Yeah. And she has this the sort of dulcet tones, a real flow to her voice. Yeah. And at times I actually struggled to stay awake. 
I got really sleepy. And I just went with it because I thought this feels like what her book is about in some way of being not quite awake, not quite asleep in that sort of middle space of, you know, a wakeful dream or something like that. Yeah. And it's like that in-between state, I think, of some of your pieces uh, coming back to Numia and, and, and the lava crater. Yeah. You know, is the volcano subsiding into absence or is it arising into a fire? Is it going to erupt? You know, that unknowingness, that half awake, half asleep, you know, falling off or rising up uh, and the inability to really pin down exactly what's going on in a painting. The difficulty to pin down exactly really what Rebecca's referring to. For instance, she is, she talks a lot throughout her book of these places in America. Yeah, she does. As if, as, as if we know them. It's like all the songs of a particular era from, you know, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell. They talk so much about places in America and we think we know them and you're like, I've never been there. I have no idea what that place is like. <laughs> yeah, I I am grateful I have been and, and sort of experienced some of what she's talking about. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, she does a very good job of describing it anyway. I wonder if I would have enjoyed the book quite as much if I hadn't been to these places. Speaking of books, let's wind up. And if you can tell me, what are you reading now? So I'm reading The Magic Mountain, which is a massive book. It's by Thomas Mann, and it, it's about a man that goes to a sanatorium in the Swiss Alps to be treated for tuberculosis. And it's it's about the sort of private world that the patients or the residents have in that space. And it's, it's really wonderful, delightful book. It's just very long. <laughs> Hannah Luxton, thank you so much for our conversation today. It was really interesting. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review. And of course, you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, Art Fictions 2020 or my website gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. What are you going to do for the rest of today now? I'm going to work. You've got a studio at home, you lucky thing. Yeah, yeah, this is my... It's taken a long time to get it to this, I tell you. (laughs) It's a a garage. Uh, Oh, okay. So when when we moved in, the floor was red paint all peeling off.